Welcome to The Structure Show. I'm Tom Krasett, the executive editor of Structure, the company that brings you the most informative and useful events in the tech industry. Today, we're going to check in on Microsoft's progress toward becoming a cloud-focused company, at least more so. Uh, Twitter's never-ending search for a stable product leader, and, and how to separate the wheat from the chaff when it comes to AI, because I don't think that Facebook and Tronk are working on the same stuff. Uh, Derek Harris of Mesosphere joins us this week from Las Vegas, which sent its weather up to the Pacific Northwest this past, past weekend for some reason, so <laughs> thanks for that. Were you at 108? We got to 102. Oh, I wow. Think, which is, I mean, that's <laughs> hot. Like, we're... Yeah. Our people are not meant for this kind of temperature up here. So, um, but no, 108. You know, that's that's like what you average on a given summer day, I'm sure. So, uh, let's get started with Microsoft. Uh, by all accounts, Microsoft is in a far better place than it was five years ago, uh, when it was fl- floundering under the leadership of Steve Ballmer before he left to run a middling basketball team. Satya Nadella has given Microsoft a mission and a purpose it hadn't really had in over a decade, uh, challenging the company to reorient itself as a software maker for multiple platforms, not just Windows, and to become a leader in cloud computing. The leadership position in cloud computing hasn't quite happened yet, thanks to Amazon Web Services' huge lead, but there's no question Microsoft is in a better place as a result of that renewed focus. You know, I was still surprised to learn, though, that Microsoft Salesforce is still chugging along with some of the out, some outdated strategies in, in light of this new reality. And I uh, read an article from Bloomberg last week. Um, it was one of those classic uh, board member goes off his leash stories, uh, quoting Microsoft Chairman John Thompson at length in an interview that that may or may not have been vetted by the PR department about how changes needed to be made among Microsoft Salesforce. You know, and one of the knocks that we've heard about Google's effort in the public cloud has been that it just doesn't get how to sell stuff to enterprise customers. You didn't really hear that about Microsoft because it's had such a you know decades of of enterprise sales success. But you know, based on the comments in the in the article um, and a few of the things that I've heard as well, you know, it just it sort of appears that just because you have experience selling software licenses to enterprise customers doesn't mean you can sell them the cloud. So how does Microsoft do this? Is this a like a culture thing that just needs to filter down through the the ranks? It, it you know it seems like the company has really bought into the cloud mentality in so many different ways. And so yeah, it was a little it was a little surprising to see that you know the chairman of the company thinks the Salesforce is still kind of trapped in the past. Yeah, I mean I I don't think that's a Microsoft specific story. I, I think if you looked at almost any company with decades of enterprise software sales. You, you would find a similar situation in that you know the, the sales force has spent its time and had has been you know made its money selling the, these legacy products and so to come in and say sell something new <laughs> um, you know is, you know give away your money maker essentially I, I think is a is a is a hard thing to ask in some situations it seems uh, like that's the like you know, the, the big question is how quickly do you ramp down the, uh, you know, boxed licensed software revenue selling strategy in, and ramp up the cloud one. And, you know, you need, it, it seems like it's really a compensation package kind of thing. I mean, I don't know the specifics, obviously, of how that works inside Microsoft, but in my experience, salespeople tend to sell the most of whatever you, you know, entice them to sell. That I'm sure, I'm sure that's true. You know, and I think, yeah, the question is how much 
do you want to, can you actually entice them to sell? So, so I come at this from a little, from a position of somewhat bias. I, I work for Mesosphere and Microsoft as a big investor in Mesosphere and, you know, we have a fairly tight partnership with them. But, you know, the one thing I would say is, I mean, I, I mean, what, what I see, you know, just take this from what it's worth, but, you know, Microsoft is very interested in this, you know, the, what you might call the cloud space and that, that encompasses containers, it encompasses Azure, it encompasses all sorts of these things. I mean, Microsoft is, I mean, I, I see it betting, you know, making big investments in the space. And I think, I don't think it's going to be too long, I guess. I mean, like, I guess it'll come, come around. That's what I'm saying. I, I think, you know, so they, they know where the future is and it's just, it's a matter of like just bringing the, it sounds like it's a matter of bringing the sales team and bringing maybe some of the sales, uh, compensation <laughs> packages or however that's laid out, uh, in, into the future. But you know, what was interesting was one of the things in the article that I that I noticed was that Thompson, you know, was giving you know the company a lot of credit for for moving in this direction. But I think he was just concerned that you know the the old revenue was going to disappear faster than the new revenue would make it up. And he, he you know he brought up the example of um, <clears throat> excuse me somebody at a uh, a telecom company you know where I think it was AT and T where you know the wireline revenue that was so stable for so many years and. You know, it was just really easy for the sales force to renew those deals. And um, it went away so fast that, you know, the transition to wireless revenue, which obviously has you know, kept those companies quite fat and happy, yeah, it happened really, really quick. And it, there was a couple of years where people were just not really prepared to deal with that. And, you know, Thompson was implying that there's something similar going on here, you know, at Microsoft. And, and to your point, I think is true, you know, at, you know, other uh, companies that are trying to make this cloud transition, you know, that, you know, the, the, the knowledge that you have to, you know, get on board with the idea of software as a service is, is not controversial anymore. It's just really the how and the, uh, you know, the speed at which you make that transition. I would say, though, that I, I don't happen to see, I mean, I don't think the cloud transition is going to kill I mean, Microsoft is in a different position than a lot of other software companies, I think, because, because Azure is such a strong cloud platform. Right. And, I mean, the, 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 the enterprise, I mean, the on-premise private cloud, whatever you want to call it, that's not actually not going anywhere as far as I'm concerned or what I'm seeing. I think companies, especially large ones, still want, they still are going to set, they're going to want on-premise software. They're going to, they're going to want SQL Server. They're going to want Windows Server if they're Windows shops. Um, Microsoft has a private, you know, this hybrid cloud strategy that Microsoft talks about. It's actually valuable. Um, I don't see it. It's not, I mean, it's not like Dell, right? <laughs> Where you're like, oh, Dell sells servers. Well, that's a, that's a problem. I mean, Microsoft software, for me, when you read the numbers, like SQL Server, its software business still makes a lot of money. Like, yeah. I think that's exactly the point that Thompson was trying to make, though, is that, you know, products like SQL Server and some of the older Microsoft your cash cows, I mean, are still cash cows, you know, and, and when, you know, you're, you know, when you're just a sales rep and you're just trying to, you know, make a living, like you, you sell the things that are going to help you make money. And, you know, I think it's going to be interesting to see how not just Microsoft, but other companies do that. I mean, you look at Oracle, right? I mean, like there's a company where this problem has got to be even more pronounced because just because of the, the legacy of how entrenched that, that software is in so many different companies. And, you know, trying to get these new, trying to get people to sell these new products that aren't being received, you know, with nearly the same degree of, of enthusiasm has got to be pretty hard. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I, but again, I mean, Microsoft, compared to Microsoft to Oracle, 
Azure is now a solid, you know, competitor in the, in the, in the cloud space. It's not, it's kind of Amazon and Azure and Google is the thing where you go, well, what's really going to be, you know, what's the, uh, the future there, right? I think, I mean, that's the one that people question now. Well, it's um, so. interesting, though, because, I mean, people do. I, I totally agree with you that the perception of Azure as a product has probably never been higher. Uh, but if you don't know how to sell it, does it matter? You know, like, That's the thing. I, th- I think they do know how to sell it. I think the question is, you know, I guess, yeah, I mean, the question is, how where's that balance? You know, and it might be for a company, I don't know, maybe for Microsoft, the balance is is still heavier in the in the traditional enterprise software for longer than we think it's going to be, just because again, so many people use it and seemingly like it, and they want to use Azure as sort of a hybrid strategy, yeah. right? I mean, I mean, I obviously, I mean, if if the, if, the, if the chairman of the board has a different feeling or the board member has a different feeling, you know, I, who, who am I to say? But um, it just seems like, you know, I, I just you can't. I mean, like we like when Mesosphere. This is a personal anecdote. When we open sourced our DCOS platform in April. Uh, you know, people want to install that on premises. Yeah. They want to run it in data centers. Like um, Verizon, one of our big customers, runs it in a data center. Like that's not, it's just, it's not going away. So I, I think the, the, you know, the rush to be like, the, this idea that you're going to see uh, software sales evaporate, I, I think is kind of not exactly true. Yeah, I, I think evaporate is the wrong word. I think diminish is the right word. You know, like even if we still have a lot of big installations like the ones you're referring to, I mean, the small and medium-sized businesses that were Microsoft's bread and butter, right, for all those years, yeah. like you just had to go Microsoft. You know, those people are not going to sign up for the same things, you know, year after year. You know, like the 100-person company or the, you know, the 300-person law firm or, you know, like those those people are, are choosing different things. And I think that's where the concern lies. If you're Microsoft is not that like you'll lose like the, the fortune 50 companies of the world. Cause they're all still going to want some sort of hybrid approach, but that you, uh, you lose the long tail, I guess, to borrow a, a terrible internet publishing. Metaphor. <laughs> yeah. That, that's probably a fair point. And that's an area, I mean, God, yeah, that, that's an area that I don't think anyone's quite figured out yet. Yeah. Amazon is probably not the right choice for those companies. Google is probably not the right. I mean, no, no cloud play. They're, they're like spot services for those companies at totally. this point. Yeah, nobody really, platform, has a, nobody really has a good, you know, Google has nice, Google and Microsoft have nice docs stuff that Amazon doesn't have. Amazon has nice computing stuff that the other companies don't have. And, you know, I mean, it's a whole, it's a whole mess, but it's interesting and it's going to have a huge impact on the way that this market plays out. And, and you know, I, I, I definitely think that this is something that, you know, Microsoft can tweak with a little bit more of a, you know, you get some people in there who have a little bit more cloud um, experience. But, you know, I sort of wonder just in general, what it, it it's kind of funny to me that Amazon, um, which we've talked about for years, is having the technical prowess, you know, with AWS to, to really attract all this business. Like they, you know, they very quietly built a very, very good cloud enterprise sales force that, you know, makes it easy for people to stick with them. So that's, that's you know, a challenge that, I don't think we anticipated certainly Microsoft, you know, to have to uh, to have to take on. But here we are. Uh, speaking of challenges that people have to take on, uh, what who's going to be the next product head at Twitter, and and what do you have to do to stay in that in that job? You know, I, um, Twitter continues to be an amazing product in search of a stable company that can run it well, and 
you know, the, this uh, this week on Monday, they actually said goodbye to the fourth head of product in the last two years. And uh, this time they didn't e- even name a replacement for the role. And uh, depending on how old you are, you either made a joke about Spinal Tap drummers or uh, Hogwarts defense against dark arts professors in response to this revolving door. Um, and we're definitely in the Spinal Tap generation <laughs> on this podcast. You know, I guess that maybe Jack Dorsey is the real head of product at Twitter, and so anybody in that role has to uh, has to deal with that. But it's a strange situation at a company that a lot of engineers and tech people in general want to root for. This kind of instability is not the kind of thing that endears job seekers to your company. And Twitter has faced down a lot of tech challenges in its past, improving its stability, improving its mobile apps. But how is it going to handle this one? Uh, you know, I... I don't know. I, I wish I were a better Twitter power user, so I, I feel like I would have more of a an opinion on the product. I, what I, I I just find honestly, for for me, Twitter as a product, I it's one of those things. I think it, maybe this maybe I'm just wildly speculating here, but it came of age in a time of like this freemium sort of product, right? And where, where companies just want to grow and attract users, and that was the the be all end all, right? And maybe it's a part of this bubble talk that we hear so much about and the chase of scale. Yeah, and there's just like Twitter to me is a product. I use it. I like it. I think I heard uh, Twitter's VP of engineering who actually helped build Amazon Web Services back in the day was speaking at MesosCon last week and he said something like, you know, I think if you had this shut off switch and you had to think of web services that you would shut down, like Twitter would be among the last in terms of not wanting to shut it down because it could be disruptive to so many people. And I kind of agree with that. Like it is a valuable thing. But at the end of the day, as a money-making product, as a thing, I, I just don't know... I don't know what the product is. Well, no one seems to know what the product is, and that's exactly the point, like, right? It's just that, I, I mean, it's yeah. it's a million different things to a million different people, and <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it, it's um, it always has felt to me like more of a protocol than like a company, you know? Like, mm. like if somebody had you know commercialized IMAP, you know, like back in the day, like that'd be weird, right? And it wouldn't have necessarily worked, and you, you wouldn't exactly understand how to create a business model around that. And so you'd have to start tweaking the product constantly instead of just having the basic product, you know, and, and I don't know, maybe it's that simple with Twitter that it's just this kind of, you know, the communications platform that resists, you know, the, the advertising uh, monetization quite, quite as, uh, you know, easily as some of the other ones. I mean, I, I think, you know, the point that you mentioned about, you know, the, one of the last, like, you know, services to come of age in that era. And, you know, I mean, I think people have always tried to compare Twitter to Facebook and it's like Twitter cannot win that battle. It's, it's, it, well, it hasn't, you know, it's and, just and, and not it's, Facebook. I yeah. Mean, it's, it's as not, a platform. It's it, not, it's, and that's okay. I mean, like it doesn't have to be, uh, I mean, there's like what, two, three companies in the world operating at Facebook scale, you know, like you can build a nice business and not have to be, have a billion users per day. But Twitter doesn't see, I mean, maybe this is like the thing with Microsoft where they just need a culture transition between, you know, product and sales and and engineering, because it seems pretty clear that, I mean, I don't understand how you work in the product group at Twitter if you've had four leaders in two years. Like, you haven't even learned what the last person wanted you to do before they're gone. One one thing that I, I mean, I always felt like the, this you know the GNIP acquisition that Twitter made just kind of sell analytics to businesses. I always in like deep kind of Twitter firehose and all that sort of stuff. I always thought that that would be a good money maker um, 
because I mean, we've heard for years, right? Like social media and analyzing it and IBM and Twitter made this big deal recently around analytics. Like there, there's something there, I think. They I don't talked know about big, this at structured data. I don't know how big of a business that is, but you know, I, I guess if you're Twitter, the question is how do you bring in more people to make that data more valuable? And that to me is really like that. I mean, that's a difficult part, right? You might want, I mean, maybe you need to double growth or whatever to get, you know, to get a broader swatch of, or swath of, of users that, to make this business data more valuable. But I mean, when I look outside of like my professional sphere, very few people in my personal life that I know use Twitter. Yeah. Um, at the end, I'm, so I'm 36 and very few people that I know personally use Twitter and younger people seem to use Snapchat. <laughs> and there's just like this lot and everyone, but everyone I know uses Facebook. Right. And so there's just this lost Twitter seems to be in like this nether region. And I'm not sure how you bring people into it at this point. No, that's a really good point. And I, I've always thought one of the, you know, hidden problems of Twitter was just like the, I mean, you've heard of the 80-20 rule. I think with Twitter, it's like the 98-2 rule. You know, like so, <laughs> so much of its content is produced by relatively so few people. And so the data that you get based on that usage is probably not necessarily what would appeal to the average user. And, you know, I think you make a really good point about the, uh, the generational and and you know the sort of like people in the normal world like i mean i never really wanted to use twitter was sort of forced to do it you know in order to be a modern you know tech media person and you know at some point along the way just sort of got glued to it and and can't really even break myself of that now and if you didn't go through that process in you know say 2009 2010 2011 or or even earlier you're not going to do it. You know, like it just, they, they don't really seem to be able to, you know, it's not just onboarding, signing up and, and checking it out and stuff like that. It's actually like getting into Twitter and understanding how it works. And that's fair. Is, I use is it a that lot a product less problem. I mean, I don't, I, you know. now that I'm not a reporter, I use Twitter. I, I, I mean, 90, I would say 80 to 90% less frequently than I did. I just, I don't have tweet deck open in front of me all day long. I'm not engaged as much as I used to be like, there's just not the, the the return isn't there, right? As much and as I mean, I and I don't even know if it ever really was there. You know, like <laughs> we just sort of, a lot of us just really felt that we were getting some sort of benefit out of this. And you know, I mean, it, in 2016, Twitter is a place where journalists talk to each other, and you know, racist people hurl insults, and and I don't know, I, and, I just don't understand. And you see all that when you read the news story that embeds the tweets. You don't have oh, to God. sign up for Twitter. <laughs> So well, they they love to talk about the uh, logged out reach. So there you go. But <laughs> well, yeah. Well, there you go. But it's not yeah. logged in. <laughs> well, and yeah, and it's not monet. You're not you're not monetizing it. And and I mean, you know, it, it seems pretty clear that Twitter internally has been having these kinds of discussions and debates for a very long time. I mean, you don't you don't see the kind of turnover that you see. You know, if people are all you know, very understanding of, of the strategy where you're going. You might have one big purge and then you move on, but you don't have this constant, like, you, you know, revolving door at the top of the product organization if you understand what the product is. So that's, I don't know. I still do think that Jack Dorsey is the head of product Twitter and, and really what they need to find is somebody who can just like work with that. But, you know, at some point, at some point, he's going to run out of uh, patience, I would think, from his board, you know, especially as he tries to run two companies. So it'll be interesting to see what Twitter manages to pull off. 
Uh, and so finally, let's talk today about artificial intelligence, which is something that you and I usually wind up talking about whenever we do the structure show. But I was struck by a couple of things over the last week when it comes to AI. The, the Probably the most important thing was Facebook's new search product, um, which we'll get to in a second. But, you know, I also thought it was really interesting uh, the degree to which attendees at the code conference, the, uh, the swanky tech conference put on in Southern California by Recode, I was really struck by how many people worked AI into those talking points. And, you know, of course, there was the hilarious launch of Trunk, the (laughs) former Tribune company, and it's, and I quote here, Trunk X, our content curation and monetization engine to combine existing assets with new artificial intelligence technology to accelerate digital growth. (laughs) End quote. So let's start with something we actually know is based on some pretty solid AI research, and that's Facebook's product. It's called Deep Text. It's a system for understanding what our written words actually mean. And it's something we've talked about in pieces before, Structured Data 2016 and and earlier. So, but from your perspective, what exactly is Deep Text and and how does it work in terms of surfacing uh, relevant Facebook content to people who use the system? Well, well, I think the, I mean, the, the, the idea behind deep text or any really any type. I mean, this this. I mean, this is goes. You could probably expand this to. I mean, Google probably certainly has you know similar similar algorithms and similar models working. I mean, the idea is pretty, I think pretty simply. The, the better your your AI understands what someone is saying or what they're trying to say, um, you know, the better it can actually surface the right content for them. So it's no longer just a matter of keyword search you know the people used to talk about semantic web or semantic search and this is really that like scaled and actually workable <laughs> I, I guess um you know i mean that i mean that, that's the long and short of it it's like facebook you want to search for i mean i, I don't know I mean, I mean i would imagine to you know deep search so i mean that i mean that's the long and short of it right you take you take words you understand their context you understand what 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 they are i mean when you, when you look at all this stuff around pictures right i mean if you if you connect this to you know, and Facebook has so many photos, right? And we start connecting this to, you know, a, a text algorithm with a image recognition algorithm. You've seen these things before already come out where, you know, your your AI can put a, put an accurate caption on a photo, right? I mean, it's just a very powerful way of searching through all that content that is out there. Google does it, Microsoft does it, Facebook does it now. I mean, that I mean that's the the real thing because these things just become so. I mean, we talked about how Facebook is such a huge scale platform. And it just is. There's just so much content that you and your friends and other people have posted there that to search through it in any meaningful way with, without some sort of AI or advanced machine learning is like nigh impossible. I think the particular right? challenge of language is interesting, though. You know, like I like how I remember seeing some of the first image recognition uh, demos. You know, like back I don't know six eight years ago, and and thinking that that was an amazing feet that people were able to recognize images but like it turns out it's actually really easy in the grand scheme of of these networks and understanding language and intent and like you, you know what we actually mean when we when we write down you, you can say the same sentence and you know with differences in tone and inflection and and you know any kind of real subtle things like that it, you can mean something very different depending on how you come down on that and Teaching a computer how to figure that out seems like it's been quite a an ordeal. Yeah, I think I, I think that's true. But um, you know, we've seen a lot. I mean, we've seen great advances in that 
in the past several years. I mean, deep learning, you know, you hear it all the time now in AI and it's just been remarkable and speech. Uh, so spoken word, written word, and speech, text, and vision have really been the areas that, that all this, you know, people call it like machine translation tasks. That's really been the, the, the areas where it's excelled the most. And, um, I, I think, I think, yeah, I mean, to, to, to me, the real value is like, I mean, so sorting through those comments on Facebook, right? <laughs> like surfacing. I mean, how you, it's like Twitter's problem, kind of, some degree. I mean, they're, they're, if, they're, if there are 8,000 comments on your post, right, how are you going to, how are you going to surface anything? If you're, um, if you're trying to make your uh, news algorithms more accurate, right, how are you going to figure out what, uh, what people are actually saying? I mean, people used to talk about sentiment analysis as if it was like, there's this holy grail. The problem was nothing actually did sentiment analysis very well and it was easily stumped. And so now if you're able to, you know, train models that can actually accurately or relatively accurately analyze text, that that's a big win for a company like Facebook. And I think the, like I said, the image thing too is a huge deal because you're not, you're not just going to want to search based on, you know, if you, if you look at like Google search, for example, or Google photos, it, it's pretty powerful. Actually, you can go through your photos and search for, um, you know, if I search for like beach, I don't, I don't label my photos. Right. But, but the algorithms have already labeled them for me. Essentially they've tagged them using AI. And, but now let's say I want to go different. Let's say I want, you know, I want a picture from Facebook of a, you know, a dog running on the beach. Like that takes advanced, that, that, that takes understanding text and it takes understanding and tying that to photos. Right. I think that's the big thing because the push is always toward more video content and more photo content and richer content. And, you know, so to me, that's going to be the big, that's going to be like the, I don't know, let's say the holy grail, that might be a little much, but that's going to be, I think, where it's most powerful, where Facebook users are going to notice it. It's just like, you know, it's searching through all the content they're producing, not just the text. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, it, whatever the, you know, the, the implications of it down the road, I mean, at least we can agree that Facebook is working on some groundbreaking AI stuff. And, and you know, I hope that uh, we're able to talk about that in uh, the future at, at you know upcoming structure events as well. But what about the AI washing? <laughs> what are what? We gonna, so what are we going to do about that? You know, you see these companies talking about, oh, we're going to put AI in our in our products. We're going to have AI based decision making. It, it's like the new big data, I guess, right? Like, you know, oh, we're data driven organization. We really understand how to use data to leverage decision making processes. Yada yada yada. A, a few years ago, I think I, I speaking of Twitter, I tweeted out something along those lines, like machine learning is the new big data, right? Like, or, you know, it, it, it's just, it got, it got planted in front of everything or tagged onto everything. We are machine learning or, you know, we're bringing machine learning to X, pick literally anything. Yeah. And now it's AI is the, is, you know, the, the step above machine learning, I guess. I mean, I think it's, there are some things in which I can see how it makes sense. I mean, Google has talked a lot about, you know, sort of doing AI as a service, you know, like that, that's something they want to bake into, you know, a lot of their cloud products, a lot of their mobile apps, you know, that they could, that other developers can then take advantage of with their own products. So, you know, I can see how there's some justification, but this is, I mean, it's just starting to get a little ridiculous. I mean, I, I don't, and I'm sort of wondering, like as somebody who has, you know, been watching the growth of this field for so long, like how do you know when someone is full of it, when they start talking about their AI work? <laughs> Honestly, I, I've come to the point where, like, unless you have, unless someone comes with actual results in an application, it's hard to take it too seriously, 
right? Because it's so easy to say, oh, we have these machine learning people and we're, you know, we're going to do, I mean, like Tronk is a prime example of this. You show me proof that AI can accurately like step up your digital growth in some way by curating content or whatever. The, <laughs> that's been talked about so long and I'm not sure it's been really well um, executed. I don't so, think the person who wrote that press release had any idea what. <laughs> I mean, where do we see AI is actually successful? Facebook, Google, Microsoft, these places. Um, and it's not, it's funny because the, the companies that talk about doing this, they have some grand visions, so sure. But the, the applications of it are very down to earth. Right. I mean, they're, they're starting small and they're building, yeah. And, and so when you hear these things are tied to like, I don't know. I mean, we're going to do, I mean, how good is Google now as a digital system? It's not great. How good is Siri? That's good. It's not great. How good is anything? Like, you know, when, when I hear people talk about how they're going to, I mean, I've heard so many of these things come along over the years and they're going to revolutionize this space using AI and it just, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of, I don't know. I, when I hear these things, I, I say, how realistic is that now? Because the company's probably not going to last <laughs> the time it would take to, uh, to actually do that in the end. The other place you hear it too is like, and, and maybe something will come with this. I don't know, but like Mark Benioff loves to talk about AI enough from salesforce.com. Really? And yeah, he's been talking about it for years and, and he actually just bought. Uh, so I remember a couple years ago, there was this company called Relate IQ, which um, was like a CRM, a machine learning based CRM company. Uh, DJ Patil, who's now the US chief data scientist was a, uh, what was part of that company. Um, and then uh, I think it was two, a month or two ago, Salesforce bought MetaMind, this uh, Stanford-based oh, that one I do AI company. And so, um, you know, you can see how they're trying to bring, take these techs and bring, you know, bring it into business software. Um, you know, I don't know how it's actually going to pan out. I know another, there's another, there was another company that's actually focused around Salesforce data and applying AI to it. It's called, I forget what it's called, but yeah, it was a, another like uh, deep learning natural language processing expert who started this company. So, I mean, I, I think if you start, what I'm getting at, I guess, is if you start with these small things and you can actually develop a real application using it and show some results, it's easy to say, okay, these people might have, they might be onto something, but to just hear it thrown about and bandied about as this, this new thing that's going to change the world of everything um, at, at this point, it seems a little fantastic. Yeah, by the time media companies figure out how to do their own artificial intelligence, the world will have moved on to something else anyway, right? So, <laughs> well, right. I don't think. I, I God, I mean, if it were that easy, right? Like right. content is not. It, like it's just. I don't. I don't even know. I mean, I used to think at, at Gigom all the time about applying. Like, how would we apply this? And I, I just don't think anyone's figured it out. I mean, people talk about like outbrain and all those. Like, yeah. you might like this story, and they're just not. Hey, listen, maybe Facebook will be really good at it because it has so much. I mean, honestly, like maybe Facebook will be the ones to figure out as much as people hate that idea. Well, I think that's the idea behind deep text, right? Which is what we you know, started talking about here. It, it's the language recognition and understanding problem is like still a huge, huge area for, for growth in AI. And I mean, that is the, the problem for the trunks of the world. So... Well, the chunks of the world have a lot of problems, actually. You know what's remarkable, though? So if you look at uh, Baidu as a company, I mean, people should, I think people should learn, like, start to look at what other companies are doing, too. Baidu, uh, Andrew Wing from Baidu always talks about how one of the biggest, most profitable things they do with AI is not all these fantastic things they have around, like, smart bikes and smart glasses and all these things. 
they, uh, they, they find better pictures to go with uh, search results or, or ad text. And it has, like, <laughs> it has like, a, like quantifiable effect. The better image they can find to, to throw onto like a text ad, ad search result or something. Um, yeah, it's, like a, it's quantifiably uh, profitable for them. And I think, I mean, I mean, if people talked about it in those terms, I think it would be a lot more believable, right? You don't even, when I think of big data now, actually. And, you know, because for years people said, oh, you know, that we're going to find this needle in a haystack and you're going to find these insights and these business insights. And that has come to some degree, but it, it's, you know, people just get latch on to these things very early. And um, so sometimes they don't play out. <laughs> I would argue big data finally came to be with the Internet of Things and real-time data, and that that's an area where you're starting to see all these technologies and the use cases really coalesce and, and become a real thing. And I think AI, in a lot of cases, is still looking. People are excited, rightfully so, but they just need to find the actual application for it, not talk, you know, talking about it in grand terms doesn't always accomplish a whole lot. Uh, well, you know, we'll just have to see how uh, quickly AI actually turns into real money for anyone outside of Facebook or Microsoft, but, you know, it's something that hopefully won't get beaten quite into the ground as, as a buzzword du jour. Um, so that is all the time we have today for the Structure Show. Thanks, Derek, uh, as always, for coming on the show. Uh, and uh, just a reminder to anybody out there, uh, we are uh, now selling tickets for Structure Security, uh, September 27th and 28th in San Francisco. Uh, we've got a great lineup of advisors and speakers all booked for that, so check out structuresecurity.com. For more information, and you can register on that page as well. Thanks again, everybody. Have a good week.